Welcome to episode 59, The Truth About What We Agree On. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you find yourself disagreeing with someone on social media or talking to a friend, share this episode with them and see if you can find some middle ground. Or if specific topics come up like mass shootings, socialism, i.e. free stuff, or cryptocurrencies or religious liberty comes up, please share the topic-specific Truth Quest episode with your friend. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment to scroll down to the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for that link. The easiest way to stay up to date on the podcast is to subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play Music. It's also available on Spotify, Stitcher, podbean.com, and the video version of the podcast is available on YouTube and bitshoot.com. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. This episode is dedicated to everyone who is tired of talking about all the stuff we disagree on. The idea is even counter to the very existence of this podcast, but even I get tired of focusing on areas of disagreement. I have a childhood friend who I would describe as left of center, but he's guided by common sense and logic. He's not an ideologue. He's not a hook, line, and sinker kind of thinker. In other words, he ain't a Kool-Aid drinker. He thinks for himself rather than having others tell him what to think. The biggest difference lies in the general lack of disdain of the big government, as I do. He does not naturally see the federal government as a threat and is, for the most part, agreeable to the feds providing some level of assistance to the masses. Like most folks of his political persuasion, you won't hear him quoting the Constitution or invoking the Tenth Amendment, but neither do members of either political establishment. He does think critically and will discuss issues without name-calling, which is a good thing. Over the almost four decades that I've been friends with him, I think it's safe to say that we are usually in the same ballpark on almost any political or public policy issue. Now granted, he may be sitting in the front row behind home plate, and I may be 420 feet away in the far reaches of the outfield, but at least we're in the same arena. With that said, I thought it'd be nice to publish an episode that focuses on the things that most of us agree on. It would seem to me that fixing the shit that most of us agree on would be a reasonable strategy for our representatives to employ, and then maybe circle back to the other headbutting issues. I mean, doesn't that just make logical sense? Rather than continuing down the road and beating the crap out of each other rhetorically and thinking ill of our family and friends who have a different political ideology, why not get together on the things we do agree on rather than letting the government continue to screw all of us decade after decade. There are what I call fringe issues that we agree on but are not allowed to discuss openly because of the National Democrats, left-wing advocacy groups, and the media who have hijacked the language and poisoned the discourse make it impossible for us to have reasonable discussions. Consider abortion. Most people oppose abortion at least at some point during pregnancy, but the left has poisoned the discourse calling it a choice or the war on women, or denouncing men for trying to tell women what to do with their bodies. We never get a chance to ask the simple question I pose in episode number two, what about the baby? Nor are we allowed to discuss what the Roe v. Wade opinion actually says, as discussed in episodes 46 and 47. Instead, we are locked in a perpetual state of angst, and arguing making no headway, as I discussed in episode 33. Consider climate change. Most people feel like there is something to the claims that humans are having a detrimental impact on the planet, 
but the left has poisoned the discourse by calling anyone who disagrees with their conclusions deniers, regardless of the lack of scientific evidence, and despite the evidence of data manipulation, and despite the fact that famous climate change advocates fly around the planet in private jets in order to attend chic global warming symposiums. They refuse to debate because, after all, the science is settled, and anyone who disagrees is a Neanderthal. Consider immigration. Most people agree that immigration laws should be enforced. That doesn't just go for Americans, but worldwide. Most people believe in enforcing their borders. Most people see the lunacy of open borders, but the left has poisoned the discourse by calling anyone who disagrees with their suicidal ideas of open borders, free health care for illegal immigrants and amnesty, xenophobes and racists. Never mind the fact that Pew Research polls consistently find a wide majority of respondents want fewer or about the same level of immigration, not more. Consider gay marriage. Most people don't care what other people do with their lives. They may believe the behavior is unnatural and against biblical dictates, but so be it. However, the left has poisoned the discourse by calling anyone who opposes such a lifestyle homophobes. We are never allowed to have discussions about civil unions and the legal rights of spouses. Nope. We must change the very definition of marriage. Don't try to tell me that the definition of marriage has changed from one woman to one man to any other combinations. The word has a definition. Blue is blue. A car is a car. An airplane is an airplane. Marriage is marriage. Changing the definition is done purposely to antagonize so-called traditionalists in order to paint them as homophobes. So those are some of the fringe issues that I believe we could solve if we were permitted to have an intellectually honest debate and negotiation. What I want to discuss for the balance of this episode are issues that a large majority of people agree on. And when I say large majority, I'm going to say around 60%. So first, I contend that a large majority of Americans agree that Washington, D.C. is a cesspool. As I conveyed in episode 19, the executive and legislative branches are overreaching, arrogant, waste-ridden, inefficient, unresponsive to their constituents, corrupt, controlled by special interests, obsessed with re-election. They're the architects of crony capitalism, they're irresponsible, unaccountable, out of control, and they break their own rules. With the unseating of incumbents virtually impossible as they enjoy a 90% plus re-election rate, career politicians now plague us, and along with them comes the thousands of lobbyists and interest groups fraught with millions and sometimes billions of dollars to throw around. What is Congress's approval rate, around 18%? What about the judiciary? Well, rather than interpret the Constitution, it consistently legislates from the bench and creates constitutional rights out of thin air, using its own concocted president, which is then used by subsequent courts to arrive at other idiotic and unconstitutional opinions. It's death by a million bad precedents. What about the Federal Monetary Authority, the Federal Reserve? Well, it's purposely devaluing the dollar, causing inflation, while leading the country into bankruptcy with their manipulation of the monetary system. I mean, describing the federal government as dysfunctional is being generous. It is willfully negligent in the exercise of its duties. What's the action item for this particular issue? Unlike my friend, do not trust Washington. Employ healthy skepticism on everything coming from our overlords in D.C. Stop putting so much faith in them. They are willfully destroying our country, all in the name of power, control, and incumbency. What about spending and debt? Now, this is a complicated public policy issue. Inherently, people understand that excessive government spending is bad. 
Pew Research indicates that on the one hand, Americans favor increased spending to a certain extent in areas such as education, veterans benefits, highway infrastructure, Medicare, environmental protection, health care, scientific research, social security, assistance to the needy, anti-terrorism in the U.S., military defense, assistance to needy in the world, and assistance to the unemployed. Man, that's a long laundry list. On the other hand, less than 20% trust the federal government to do what is right just about always or most of the time. I have a hard time reconciling those two findings, but the takeaway is very simple. Limit the federal government's spending to only those things that are constitutional. Think back to the list I just mentioned. How many of these things are powers enumerated in the Constitution to the federal government? Education? No. Highway infrastructure? Nope. Medicare? Environmental protection? Healthcare? No. Scientific research? Social security? Assistance to the needy? Assistance to needy in the world and assistance to unemployed? Absolutely not. Whereas a constitutional argument can be made for veterans benefits, anti-terrorism in the U.S., and military defense, but just because it is doesn't mean we approve wasteful and fraudulent spending. What about right-to-try laws? Some of you may not be familiar with these laws, but I'm sure you are all familiar with the Food and Drug Administration and how they are charged with approving pharmaceuticals and medical procedures. You know, in order to protect the stupid masses. Well, not only does the FDA cause delays in the delivery of life-saving drugs and procedures, but they cause the research and development cost to skyrocket which in turn raises the cost of health care, which then gives liberals the opening to bitch about and call for the government-run health care system to solve the problem that it's largely created. Sorry for the tangent, this stuff just makes me crazy. Anyways, these right-to-try laws are laws passed in the individual states that nullify the federal FDA restrictions on certain non-approved drugs and procedures. So the idea is, why can't a terminally ill person try any and all options available? They're terminal. Yet lawmakers and bureaucrats think a better solution is for those people to die when a cure or temporary fix may be available. Even if you aren't terminal, the federal government has no power to dictate to you what you can do with your own body, especially if you're sick. Here again, we have another unconstitutional federal agency dictating to the people. We do not owe any loyalty to the FDA. The work they do can be performed by private entities and academics. In addition to being unconstitutional, it's immoral to purposely withhold treatment. What about the surveillance state? You know, NSA spying, warrantless stingray spying, facial recognition, the license plate stuff. This is a no-brainer. People do not support this. Idiots like the late John McCain and Senator Lindsey Graham will make idiotic statements in support of it, like, well, if you don't have anything to hide, then you don't have anything to worry about. That's not how the Constitutional Republic works. That's not how the United States Constitution was written. You don't have to go far into the Bill of Rights to see the plain and simple language. The Fourth Amendment is very, very clear. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable search and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrants shall be issued but upon probable cause, supported by oath of or affirmation, and particularly describe the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Surveillance and collecting data on you is the very definition of unreasonable search and seizure. It's the very definition of violating your security in your person, your house, your papers, and your effects. I mean, give me a break. We agree on sound money. This is one of those topics that the average person spends very little time contemplating, but one that, if given the facts, they overwhelmingly agree. 
When you explain to people how inflation works and how it impacts their standard of living, they will agree that sound money is better than unsound. But monetary policy is not a popular water cooler or social media topic of discussion. Therefore, our politicians, many of whom have no clue about the concept of sound money, make no effort to bring it back. For the average person to understand this issue, you just have to understand that the U.S. dollar was backed by gold and silver for over 200 years. We literally had gold and silver housed in places like the infamous Fort Knox, and we issued pieces of paper called dollars that were redeemable for actual gold and silver. The money was, so to speak, sound because we knew what backed it, gold and silver. President Nixon unilaterally took the United States off the gold standard in 1971, and we literally started printing paper dollar bills with no backing from that day forward. That is why then a gallon of milk cost around a dollar, and the average home was $26,000. Think about the cost of those items today. See, the price of an ounce of gold back then was about $35. Today it's $1,500 because its value grows as the dollar's value declines. See how that works? Government screws us over decade after decade because we do not stand together on issues that most of us agree on, like sound and money. We agree that we don't want our sons and daughters dying in undeclared wars on some foreign country for some contrived reason. The United States hasn't declared war since World War II. Congress has advocated its duty for almost 80 years. Instead, they allow the president to make the decision where and when to send our young people to fight and die and be maimed. Congressmen never have to face their constituents whose son or daughter is killed in some far-off country for little or no reason. They can slough it off on whoever is sitting in the Oval Office at the time. No more undeclared wars. Congress must vote on our military excursions so they are forced to face their constituents back home, and we can kick the assholes out of office when they become warmongers. We agree on tort reform. When you look at the amount of money spent on errors and omissions or malpractice insurance by a variety of businesses, you quickly realize how out of control our legal system is. We all agree that consumers need protection, but come on, for the good of the business community, we have to put an end to these seemingly unlimited, punitive, and compensatory damage awards. Did you know that in the British court system, the loser pays the winner's bills? You think that impacts the number of cases brought to trial? We agree on term limits. This is a popular topic and one that is roundly supported given the 18% approval rating for Congress, as mentioned earlier. In poll after poll, there is virtually no partisan disagreement on the desire for congressional term limits. In a recent poll, 75% said if given the chance to vote on term limits, they would vote for it. Even on open-ended questions about how best to fix Congress, 11% cited term limits as the number one answer, followed by replace them all. Unfortunately, there have been some Supreme Court opinions handed down that find against term limits on members of the U.S. Congress. But as we have discussed several times here, the Supreme Court does not issue decisions, nor do they issue rulings that magically become law. They issue opinions, and fortunately for us, they are not the only game in town when it comes to determining the constitutionality of a law. See, the Supreme Court has no enforcement mechanism. They can hand down any opinion that they want, but they are not God. What they say doesn't go. The executive and legislative branches gets to have their own opinion on the constitutionality of a law and can tell the Supreme Court to go screw themselves. And guess who else has the same prerogative? The states. They can nullify unconstitutional opinions by the Supreme Court and unconstitutional legislation passed by Congress. The Supreme Court does not have a monopoly on determining what is constitutional. What about the war on drugs? 
I think it's safe to say that most people, regardless of their political persuasion, agree that the so-called war on drugs has failed. The only tangible proof you need is the rash of states that have nullified federal marijuana laws. They pass laws that affirm that possession and use of marijuana in certain quantities is legal, despite the unconstitutional federal laws against it. Now, we may not agree on what drugs should be legalized, but the discussion has already started and should be continued. An offshoot of the war on drugs is something called civil asset forfeiture laws. Here again is something that everyone should rally around and get these laws abolished. If you're not familiar with these laws, they are a legal process whereby law enforcement officers seize assets from a person suspected of involvement in a criminal or legal activity without necessarily charging that owner with wrongdoing. Two words should stand out in that last sentence, suspected and without. Law enforcement essentially charges the property with a crime, not the person, thus skirting the Constitution. The federal government incentivizes local police by kicking back part of the proceeds from the sale of seized property or part of the seized cash. It was supposedly implemented to fight organized crime and drug trafficking. According to the Heritage Foundation, quote, your property is presumed to be guilty until you prove that you are innocent and that your property, therefore, should, should not be forfeited. In other words, you must prove, one, that you were not involved in criminal activity, and two, that you either had no knowledge that your property was being used to facilitate the commission of a crime or that you took every reasonable step upon the circumstances to terminate such use. And all the while, the police retain your property. To cap it off, the success rate of winning back property is low, end quote. Ever heard of innocent until proven guilty? The Tenth Amendment Center reports, quote, the scope of the federal asset forfeiture program is staggering. Between 2001 and 2017, the feds took in close to $40 billion, and the fund's net assets have surpassed $4 billion in every year since 2013. Between 2000 and 2016, the federal government has made more than 660 thousand disbursements to local and state law enforcement agencies totaling over 6.8 billion dollars end quote it's a hideous law what about the war on poverty or the department of education unless you want to deny the facts both have been raging failures the poverty rate is virtually the same as it was in 1964 when lbj declared the so-called war on poverty and the overall performance of students in the United States public school system lags historical proficiency standards. Keep in mind, both of these things are unconstitutional, which no one but me and people like Peter Schiff and the Tenth Amendment Center seem to point out these days. Here again, the National Democrats shout down anyone who speaks truth to issues like these. You hate poor people. You hate kids. And of course, you're a racist or some other ist if you talk about reforming welfare or abolishing the Department of Education. Speaking of welfare, most people agree on two things. We should have a social safety net for the needy, and welfare benefits should come with strings attached. They should be temporary, and if able, recipients should work. See, two things can be true at once. Yes, a safety net, and yes, they're temporary, and yes, you should be able to go get a job. Whether the federal government should be involved is a different story. Constitutionally speaking, the federal government should not be involved at all in any social programs, but that ship has sailed. State governments can do whatever is within their state constitution to help the poor, but my point is no one is in favor of a fellow citizen receiving welfare and abusing the system. Are you beginning to see a pattern here? We have at least half a dozen issues on which the majority of Americans agree, so why can't we coalesce behind them 
and make significant changes. This is the low-hanging fruit, so to speak. It's right there, easy to pick. Well, there are a few reasons why this isn't happening. Number one, apathy and affluence. Few people get up in arms over topics like this. We are working, we're living, we're playing. We are reasonably comfortable here in America. Therefore, you don't ponder public policy issues like these. It's boring to most people. Number two, constitutional ignorance. We don't teach the Constitution anymore. A lot of folks buy the liberal line that is outdated, that it's a living, breathing document. The Supreme Court can change it with their opinions. So ignorance and apathy, sprinkle in a little constitutional ignorance, and you have the recipe for the Republic's downfall. But there's a third ingredient that plays a dominant role in thwarting efforts to come together, that being the National Democratic Party. Now, as I've pointed out in this and other episodes, they cannot afford to allow us to agree on anything. They must push the narrative of perpetual crisis and outrage. They must perpetuate the idea that everyone is a victim of these various crises and the promise that they, the Democratic Party, is there to help them. They must shout down and name-call anyone who dares cross the agreement line. Without that, the Democratic Party dies because they are a party that is out of ideas. Other than to take other people's money and spend it on other people, or take guns away from law-abiding citizens, or offer illegal immigrants lots of free taxpayer-funded goodies. What's my point? The point is, there are plenty of areas of public policy where our representatives can come together, form coalitions, and change some of the shit currently growing in the petri dish known as Washington, D.C. Those are the areas that you and I, the masses, should focus our attention on and thereby direct our public officials' attention. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.